Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Welcome to the podcast mini-series on the neuro presented by speechtherapypd.com. Thanks for joining us on our fifth episode, Tackling the Silent Epidemic, Mild Traumatic Brain Injury After Sports Concussion. This audio course is offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. I am your host, Dr. Tabia Pope, President and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of this podcast and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. My non-financial disclosures are that I am the founder, president, and CEO of Head to Speech Incorporated, a nonprofit organization. My guest, Alicia Smalls, receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this episode, and she is currently serving as the community engagement coordinator and ambassador for Head to Speech Incorporated. She is also the board member of Minority Speaks. And now, here's a little bit about my guest today. Alicia Smalls has earned a Master's of Arts in Speech Pathology and Audiology, a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology, a Bachelor of Exercise Science and Associates of Science. As an epidemiologist and a certified brain injury specialist, her job is to investigate and discover the root cause of communicable diseases, outbreaks, chronic and acute health conditions, disease risk factors, and any adverse health outcome. Her goal as a head speech ambassador is to acquire surveillance data based on gender, age, race, and social economic status that displays trends of common cognitive communicative impairments that are obtained as a result of mild traumatic brain injury and disseminate this information among healthcare professionals to promote interprofessional practice, and ensure that adequate referrals are made by other or our fellow allied health professionals. She has recently completed her clinical fellowship as a speech-language pathologist at a rehabilitation hospital where she treated patients suffering from strokes, brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, head and neck cancer patients, patients suffering from chronic illnesses such as cerebral palsy, ALS, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's disease. She also completed a medical rotation at a long-term care and outpatient rehabilitation center. As a graduate student, she served as the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association SLP Student State Officer for South Carolina and South Carolina State University Nishla Chapter VP of Academic Affairs. The On the Neural podcast features guests who are either emerging, expanding, or influencing within the neural community, as well as those who can speak on topics related to brain injury, sports concussion management, and overall brain health. Welcome, Alicia Smalls. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Poe, for having me. Thank you. We're going to be discussing, you know, the role of the speech pathologist in public health initiatives related to sports concussion. You're going to highlight the incidence and prevalence of maltraumatic brain injury and sports-based risk factors, as well as some strategies on how to tackle this silent epidemic by contributing to sports-related concussions initiatives as a field individually and within our communities. So before we get started, which category do you think describes you the most and why? Is it either emerging, expanding, or influencing? Emerging. <laughs> emerging, okay. Because I'm still learning. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm so still what, learning every day. So what's one thing you've learned as you've emerged in this profession as a graduate student or clinical fellow to you know, being an early career professional? That collaboration is key to effective treatment. I love that. To basically advocate 
for the profession and the patient at the same time. We play a major role in rehabilitation. So that's what I've learned as an emerging SLP. And what's one tip you would give someone emerging, you know, their knowledge within medical speech pathology? Everybody's your mentor. (laughs) You can learn from anybody that you encounter. I love that. I love that. So I think that your background is so unique because you have a public health background and before you became a speech pathologist. And just tell us, like, how did you get from where you were, you know, public health to speech pathology? Why the change in, you know, your interests? Honestly, because I've always loved research, but I also love treating patients as well. So I knew that to get the best research, I would public health would probably be the most um, effective route because um, I enjoy community service and advocating for individuals and speech therapy because more so because I love cognition and I love how the mind works and research in that area. I love that. So what is the SLP's role in public health initiatives related to sports concussion? Basically using the person-centered approach to make it generalizable to facilitate improvement in the general public. Acquiring, like basically using what we learn that has worked with many different people to basically facilitate change. And which sports should a SLP focus on when contributing to public health initiatives and efforts in researching the epidemiology of mild traumatic brain injury in sports? Honestly, I don't think it's like any sport in particular that we should focus on. I think we should actually look at all sports because of the impact that the trends that I've seen over the years, there were, I want to say back in 2017 to like up to the start of the pandemic, the big five sports were like football, basketball, baseball, soccer, you know, more in-person contact sports. But as the pandemic shifted a change and like individuals access to sporting events and how we interacted with each other, you saw a shift to other sports such as like skiing, skateboard, sports that you typically didn't see before increase their prevalence in individuals sustaining sports concussions. So I think we should look at it as a whole, not just, oh, these are the major sports that someone is going to sustain a sports concussion in. Are there any major studies that you found that have actually talked about sports concussions and some of these contact sports? Well, it was one study. I want to say it was about football players. It was a group of football players and it was talking about their access to care at the sports. And it was more so talking about the financial aspects of paying for care and the insurance how insurance reimbursement work for care. And what they found was that the most referred to profession after sustaining a sports concussion was physical therapy. But the second most referred to profession were the SLPs. It also demonstrated that we were the second, but most of the people that were referred were individuals who had cognitive like. Deficit. So like basically we were second to be referred to deficit that everybody, you know, had was it wasn't anything like they had PT issues like that many of the patients complained of was cognitive deficit. Yet we were the second profession to be referred to. And then more so was along the lines of insurance reimbursement that there would be like a higher pay out for them being referred for PT before they were referred for speech. Thank you. And, you know, how can SLPs tackle the silent epidemic by increasing their knowledge of the incidence and prevalence of mild traumatic brain injury in sports? Honestly, we have a unique position as SLPs. 
We work in multiple settings. We have access to people from low socioeconomic status, different genders, those with and without insurance. So we have a unique perspective. Like we don't have to fight necessarily for at the table because we automatically have a set place, a set seat at the table. So how we can advocate for it is also starting at like school levels and low income levels where we're already there, like kind of advocate more so for the student athletes and tracking their outcomes, like tracking what's going on with if you understand like actually monitoring and following through that, you know, this trend has occurred just so that we can have like more data and more information readily available so that we can advocate for more bills and laws to be passed so that, you know, that's not just the only setting that they can be delivered the adequate care in. Another issue is like once they leave that setting, like there's not a true place for many to be referred out to. And those who can be referred out to different places sometimes don't have access to funds or the necessary income to facilitate ongoing care. And are there any differences or that you found in examining these trends regarding you know, gender, race, or age, or socioeconomic status? Are there anything that stands out to you when we examine these trends? I think the main thing that stands out to me is that you're going to get like the minorities, the low-income families that are not going to have access to continuous care and that are not educated on the continuous risk factors that may occur if this child or student athlete continues to participate in any contact sports or, God forbid, like a motor vehicle accident or anything that can, like multiple instances that can occur for them to have like a full-blown TBI. So it's just like ensuring that the family, the students, and like the community stakeholders are well aware of the impact of what that first sports concussion means. What have you found about gender? That females are, I think we report less than males. Like it's automatically, you'll see males because of the type of contact sports that they're in, but less reporting of what the females have undergone. And what about any rates per game or per player plays? I didn't find specific data for that, which means that we need more tracking and more surveillance when it comes to that. Some more like data-driven information that we can get from that area. Is there anything that stands out about this silent epidemic? Because, I mean, we talk about silent epidemic, but what does that mean to you, this being a silent epidemic? It's front and center, but it's silent because nobody's paying true attention to it or taking it as seriously as they can. I want to say it was like in 2013 and 2014, it was two bills that were bought before Congress to address this, but it didn't gain any traction beyond that year. I want to say like for the first couple of months within that 2013 and 2013, 2014 range, that basically the bill was bought up by, I want to say Senator Menendez and can't remember the other rep, but more like we need to advocate more for bills that are going to be beneficial to these athletes. There shouldn't be a point where a bill that's going to help alleviate this problem should be introduced and die automatically. There should be further conversation. There should be further advocacy, not just within our profession, but like overall. But I guess we have to start with us since we're aware of what's going on and we are the mouthpiece. Like we're the mouthpiece for many things, especially in the school setting and the medical setting. Like that's our job basically to speak up and advocate for those who sometimes can't advocate for themselves. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the Certificate Tracker? The free CE Tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. 
Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. This is a great segue into our next question. So what is the SLP's role in identifying and addressing the disparities in access to healthcare and speech language pathology referrals? Is there a correlation, you know, between the prevalence and incidence of cognitive communication impairments based on some of these risk factors as well? What do you think our role is in addressing the disparities in making sure that we understand the correlation between the cognitive communication impairments and the risk factors? I think, I think our role is like understanding that we're present in most situations. Like we see what's occurring and understanding that we have the ability to like address it. Like it doesn't have to be something that is, you know, silent or overlooked. Like we have the ability and the resources to alleviate this issue. When you go into the school system or, you know, you're trying to explain to athletes and their parents, you know, cognitive communication impairments, and you're trying to address this disparity, you know, what are some of the things that you would say to them to educate them in this area? That what their child is experiencing is normal for someone who has undergone a concussion and that there is help and services available for them, that they should monitor the child and provide their health care providers with any information or changes that they've seen that has occurred with the child, like tracking those changes that are not tracked typically on a daily basis. That would help us to better understand the ways that we can help more functional treatment and interventions that we could provide to help the child because in the end, these have a lasting effect. Like sports concussions can turn into CTE like in the long run. What are some of the cognitive communication deficits and then transition to CTE? So some deficits are deficits in memory, attention, problem solving, some visual spatial deficits, mood, some pragmatic issues, like not being able to socially interact like how they typically would. Anything like frontal lobe, parietal, you know, related, you will see deficits in that area. And then trying to get them to understand the correlation between the sports-related concussion and the chronic traumatic encephalopathy. How do we right. get them to understand that correlation as well? Okay, so according to a study by Giza and DeFore, when examined retired professional football players who had prior medical three or more concussions, what they found was that these former players demonstrated like mild impairment and early onset Alzheimer's disease and clinical depression. So like when upon reviewing their autopsy reports, they found that there was evidence of chronic TBIs with like a the tau protein disposition present among these individuals. I mean, that is, as a speech pathologist, we do need to understand the long-term impacts in order to provide the education to, you know, athletes and their support systems. How should we also explore or examine these deficits? You know, what else would you recommend us doing, you know, either treating or assessing this population? Basically, I would want to see these deficits looked at as potential biomarkers for CTE. Like maybe these, like what we're seeing visibly can basically help us, I guess, offset like what will the long-term effects will be. And maybe we can tackle it earlier. Maybe the Alzheimer's disease wouldn't be so severe if we can tackle it at a certain point. Mm -hmm. But by us not knowing and us like tackling it later, we're dealing with like a whole different disorder that's evolved and basically the person's quality of life has like decreased. So do you think that we need to focus on, it sounds like we need also need to focus on prevention before it even gets to that, to, to CTE, you know, before it gets to that long-term early onset dementia, Alzheimer's disease. It's not, like we need to focus also on the prevention aspect as well. Yes, ma'am, I would agree. And I think prevention will start at the school levels, like the, the young levels. 
Like if they're educated on what the signs and symptoms are, they can better report. There could be better referrals. There could be more advocacy for laws to be passed so that financial funding is put in place so that this doesn't occur. So yes, we can prevent it early on rather than trying to tackle it later on down the line, trying to play catch up. And I know, you know, in your experience, I'm sure you have come across a former athlete. And can you talk a little bit about your experience with working with former athletes that maybe have Alzheimer's disease or early onset dementia? Working with them has been a pleasure. Learn a lot from them. It's like they weren't aware of the deficits they had acquired until later on in life. They said that nobody truly talked to them about it. Nobody really pointed out to them that this wasn't normal or this wasn't typical until I pointed it out to them and showed them that, you know, this is not something that you have to deal with on a regular basis, that there's, you know, techniques and strategies that we can utilize to improve that memory. There's techniques and strategies that we can utilize to improve that attention. Like you're not too old to learn new things. Like, you know, the brain is always creating new neural networks. And that's what I'm here to do to work with you to improve that. Give us a case example of one of your patients that you've worked with that happened to be a former athlete. Um, let's see. I had a former uh, NFL athlete. Um, he had sustained a CBA. And um, I treated him in inpatient more so for like dysphagia. And I saw that he had some cognitive issues. Um, but um, he wanted to come to outpatient to address his cognitive issues because he said that his family um, were pointing out that he's even more forgetful um, than he was prior to um, the stroke. And he was explaining to me that he had had uh, a couple of concussions while he played pro ball, but um, that over the time that he saw that his memory was was getting bad, but he didn't realize how bad it was getting. Um, So we went through like some kind of like dual task activities with me collaborating with the um, OT and um, like doing hurdles and going through um, some problem solving um, stuff or going through some um, doing space retrieval and utilizing our ADL suite to memorize like location and visually scan the room and find stuff that he, he needs. So it was more so like doing more functional stuff um, and dual tasking to uh, rehabilitate him. And by the time he left, he was able to, um, you know, memorize that they, you know, he didn't unnecessarily memorize before. And he like was happy that his family saw the improvement in um, his memory and overall cognition. Were you able to talk to his family? Yes, his wife. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. I talked to um, his wife and um, his children. Yes, ma'am. What was their take on on their father's or their her husband's cognitive communication deficits? um, You know, throughout the years or during that time. Just more so grateful for like seeing the progress, like seeing what he came in as to versus what he discharged as. I'm just grateful for like um, having access to care that they didn't know was necessarily available to them. Mm. That's, that's so important to have that access and know how to access the care. I think, I think that, as when it comes to this, the athletic population, I think that we apply a lot of the maltraumatic brain injury to either say like the military population. And a lot of what we can apply from the military population can be applied uh, to the athletic population. Um, what are some of those similarities that you see that can be applied um, from what we know about the military population and their protocols um, with concussions to um, maybe modifying some of those assessments or treatments um, or approaches for the athletic population? 
Um, one thing I do um, see in the military population that I don't often see in our athletic population is access to support groups. They, there's always, yeah, they always have something of readily available or a support group where they can talk about issues or concerns um, with each other. But I have not come across a support group where within the South. You know, they have the virtual, but I have not seen athletes like or former athletes attend those support groups um, to address their issues that they're currently having or undergoing. And that's why we say silent epidemic, because there is an epidemic. And if we don't create those support groups, if we don't create those um, assessments and interventions that are specifically for this population, we are not truly addressing the issue. Right. You know, to, to, uh, for that population. Um, I think that's so important, support groups. And now if you were to create your support group, what are some of the, the, the strategies that you would use that you would want to see in the support group for this population? More so um, referral resources, like um, educating each other on where they, how they got access to certain things. Um, on what worked best for their family, um, how just like different strategies um, of how they uh, overcome transitioning from the athlete to the working professional. Like, how did they cope with the transition? What struggles did they have? What did they wish um, was available to them to teach them how to transition? a little better, like a little smoother instead of it being more um, difficult or uh, having like difficulty finding a job that would be um, suitable for them. I love that. Are there, is there any, what do you think about care packages in, in other types of way that we can provide resources to this population as well? I think, um, care packages are a great idea. Um, I think providing that with like um, literature, um, tackling it, the care package allows you to tackle the person as a whole because you're not just treating the brain injury. You're um, treating like their, um, their physical health, their mental health, their like social interactions. Um, so I think care packages are um, essential. I mean, that's what they use in mil- the military population as well to um, motivate them, to, to keep them going. So essentially our athletes need some motivation as well or something to keep them going or to for basically to say, let them know they're not, they're not forgotten, that mm-hmm. they matter, mm-hmm. that we see you and we understand that, you know, their struggles that, um, that you aren't able to express, but we know that they're there and we're here to help. And I also think many medical speech pathologists that might work, you know, that work in a skilled nursing facility, uh, long-term care facilities. um, I think it's also important to go, you know, go through the the population there and ask questions of, you know, did you, what did you used to do for a living? Did you, what did you, what what hobbies did you used to, uh, you know, enjoy doing? And Mm -hmm. If they say, you know, I used to play sports, I used to, um, I was an athlete. And those are the ways that you can identify this population and then begin to build your cognitive communication strategies and interventions around what they, you know, their memories, right? Um, right. How would you also address um, their their memory? And give, give us an example of something that, like, so say if you, if you, uh, we're in a long-term care facility and you came across an athlete, a former athlete, how would you structure that session for memory um, and to, to draw those memories from their former years of playing? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you have it in you because you, you have a great experience. Um, how would I draw from them? Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to 
I guess, like learn about the position that they played. Like what drove them to um, want to play that position? Uh, and basically lo- learn about what is entailed in that position and then like structure my setting uh, around that. Like, so if you were a quarterback, so you were in, in charge of calling the plays mm-hmm. uh, or scanning the field or coming up with um, the best play to get your man down the field. So essentially I'm going to make you the quarterback of the session. So I'm going to give you the activity, but I'm allowing you to call the plays and like, uh, but put like um, things that can impair them along the way in front of them to see how they strategize to maneuver, to get to where they have to go. Mm-hmm. Or you can utilize the different positions and mm-hmm. you can ask them, well, how would the running back handle this play? How would the right. handle this play, right? Um, so that's problem solving. And right. then you can also talk about their memories. I mean, if you're trying to address memory, you can say, well, do you remember some of the plays that you used to run? Can you, sh- you know, show me? And um, you can use visual spatial um, skills. So there's ways that you can incorporate. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's ways that you can incorporate their memories and what's meaningful for them and what, you know, what triggers them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you want to find what's going to motivate them to be involved in this therapy session. You know, you want to utilize that functional, you know, approach that that patient center approach when you are addressing um, this population. And I want all of us to keep that in mind um, mm-hmm. of, you know, how, how do we pull from things that athletes routine activities too? Do, can you talk about a little bit of some of the routine activities that you may incorporate in your session? Like routine activities of daily living? Mm-hmm. Yep. Routine activities of, for athletes that athletes may do um, that are that have done like going, getting, going, practicing, warming up um, their, you know, their bodies. And do you think that, you know, I think that that's a great way to incorporate the like you said, dual tasking with physical therapy and occupational therapy and how they how you can incorporate the cognitive activities into their daily activities as well. Use, utilizing dual tasking. I'm sorry, Dr. Pope, you broke up a bit. I, you say I was just saying incorporating like, like dual tasks with occupation. Yes, you, utilizing dual tasking and and utilizing um co- you know co- uh, integrating cognitive activities and some to some of their daily routines and even drawing on some of the daily routines that they had as an athlete, which is warming up for the game and you know how getting preparing for the game mentally and kind of taking them back to that 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 utilizing those memories and those routine activities. Right. Okay. So. Um... I guess I would. Um, I'm gonna have to get back. Okay, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, are, do you have any resources for you know speech pathologists in in public health that they can draw from um, for for this area that you would recommend? As far as like dual dual tasking, like resources or just in general, just for general in general for medical speech pathologists, um, you know, that may be interested in public health or that, you know, want to address brain injury and sports concussion management. Um, more so like the journals that I pull from were like the PMR journals are um, the journal of um the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation. Um, I'm, basically, I didn't just stick with um, anything speech pathology related. I was looking for more resources that um, looked at collaboration between the professions. So I found like more collaborations in like the Journal of Head Trauma, the PMR journeys, um, like a pathophysiology of sports-related concussions, like journals, sports health, um, 
any like athletic training journals that um, looked at collaboration between our profession and the public health and the SLP. I love that. And let's talk about collaboration a little bit more. I think that's so important to talk about interprofessional education and collaboration. Uh, you were very involved at your school when you were in school um, through your initial chapter. Um, can you kind of give us an idea of like, what would you recommend for students at the student level that are, you know, that's that they're in school? How can, you know, you have all of these uh, other departments, you know, everyone else is learning other graduate programs. So how can the graduate students um, in our profession, you know, collaborate with others um, even with their initial chapters? Um, basically by, um, I guess, showing up to events, um, speaking on about what the profession, what we can do, um, being um, of assistance to the athletes, um, if you can, like developing little study groups and support groups, um, within our initial chapter that can address athletes who are having like issues within the classrooms. Um, just collaborating with the, um, if there's a nutrition department available, um, providing like access to that too, you know, healthy diet that will transition to like a quicker recovery. Um, more so like at education for the athletes and the SLP chapter as a um, whole at any event, like basically putting the SLP at the sideline, like making them readily available if need be. Mm-hmm. And knowing that there is a resource and how, you know, that there, that there is a clinic on campus and that these are the resources um, and how to access them. Right. Yes, ma'am. With special rates for all groups of five or more, along with our free student accounts, SpeechTherapyPD.com continues to be the fastest growing CE provider. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Simply enter the word SLP Learn for $20 off. Are there any projects that you would recommend for students to complete or for professors to provide to their <laughs> to their students you know, to get them in this area to think about? Um, uh, more so, I was I would say like tracking of like trends, like tracking of um, what's available in that area. And once you find out what's available, you can find out, you know, what you or your chapter can provide. So like our NISA chapters, um, we, we, each chapter um, uses their, um, their year to um, raise awareness and funds um, for something um, that's in need. So like, basically utilizing your skill as initial chapter to um, basically raise funds and advocate for stuff that the athletes may potentially need um, to assist them that they don't have access to in that area. So if you know that we have some athletes that are from like low socioeconomic, like that is, you know, providing um, funding or raising money to provide them access to that additional um, position visit or access to that SOP. Alicia, is is there anything else that you would like to add um, that we haven't discussed? Um, Any that, mm-hmm, go ahead. 
as a field, we have to advocate for our advocate for reimbursement of our services in place through proper coverage for our area of expertise. So in our community, we have to collaborate more with our community stakeholders and be willing to provide the necessary education as needed and advocate for passing of bills and laws that would be essential to help alleviate this silent epidemic. Yes. And I know that you also have interest in neuroscience as well. I want yes. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about, you know, your experience and, um, you know, in neuroscience and how, you know, what's next for you. And um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about your experience in neuroscience. Um, I'm a new newbie in neuroscience. I just love anything like dealing with the brain. Um, but what I've noticed um, during um, interviews for lab rotation is that, um Neuroscientists don't know a lot about what we can do as well, like as far as cognition is concerned and as far as the connection that we provide between like um, alleviating um, CT and like how it transitioned to Alzheimer's disease. They immediately think dysphagia when it comes to us. Mm. So like being able to um, step foot in that field and provide like insight on what we actually do and provide um, more research that is more beneficial to the SLP and our roles in um, helping the athletes recover. Why do you think they automatically think that we have a role in dysphagia versus cognition? I think that's interesting for neuroscience. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I guess they're looking more so like in the um, alteration of the brain and how like deterioration in certain motor tracts impair like swallowing. So they're not automatically going to think, oh, cognition. They're they're automatically going to think either swallowing or something dealing with speaking. They never, they never thought, oh, cog, speech, you know. So it seems like just as a profession, um, as our role as a speech pathologist, and I want you to talk about a little bit more about this, of our role in sports concussion management, um, because I think it's important for us to advocate for the inclusion um, of being involved in the sports concussion management protocols and going into professional education and collaboration so people can under, you know, different professions and the public can understand that we, our role, you know, we have a role in cognitive communication and, and the areas of cognitive communication. Um, so when it comes to, you know, thinking about our role in sports concussion management, what would you say about our role? Um, Basically, our, our role in special plus concussion management, um, we're, we're essential. Honestly, we're the ones that the OTs or the PTs are called when they can't get their patients to do certain things or memorize safety um, awareness strategies. Like we're we're essential. Whether doesn't matter what setting we're in, we're essential. So like, and as soon as like we recognize that we're essential and we advocate for our profession a little bit more and then they're going to recognize that we're essential and we're needed and that we are always readily available in each setting. I think what, as a, as the, the, the concussion initiatives as a field individually and within our communities, um, I think we also need to address those, those three, right. Field, individual, and within our communities. Right. Is there anything else that we can do within our communities? Because communities are so different. You know, there's some sports communities um, that also look at, view some sports differently than other sports. Um, You know, we have maybe have really big football towns um, and, you know, there may be some conflicts of interest there um, because, you know, they don't want anything to happen to their beloved football, right? <laughs> so <laughs> you have to look at different communities because they're all different. Do you, as from a public health standpoint, when we lo- are looking into working with different communities, what should we think about? The community stakeholders, like who are the ones that they're going to listen to? Like who, um, 
they're going to lean more towards. Like, who who ear do you need to capture? Like, what do you need to say that is not um, per se taking well from you, but will be taking well from them? Hmm. I love that quote. I love that. Because it's so true. I mean, if you can't recognize who the, the stakeholder is within that community, who people listen to, who the influencers are essentially in that community um, and have them have buy-in, right? Into mm-hmm. right. what you're trying to accomplish and that you listen to their needs and address their needs as well. And don't just come in saying, you know, this is what I want to do, X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and haven't listened to them. What are some ways that speech pathologists can do that? What are some methods that we can use? Uh, I think you have to show up to like community events, honestly. Like make make yourself known. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or make yourself a relevant part of the conversation. Um, show that you're not just there temporarily that you're a permanent fixture um, and that you're going to show up and that you, you're about change and that you're going to make change in a positive direction and that you're essentially there to help. Right. Community outreach. I right. We can, you're right. That's essentially, you know, community outreach. And what does that look like in your community? What does that outreach look like in your community? Give us some examples of community outreach. What are some of the tools that we can use for community outreach? I think our connection with we need to um, develop connections with former athletes because former athletes stay in touch with um, the, um, new athletes um, and their younger athletes. They're the ones that are training them. Like you don't get trained by, you know, you never just typically just get trained by your coach. Like you always going to inspire. You're going to look for they're looking for their mentor. Just how we're looking for our mentors. So if you talk to that former athletic community and get them to buy into what you're you're teaching or what you're trying to, you know, display to the community, then our now professionals and our young professional like young up and coming athletes will be more like inclined to listen because they've been through what you're trying to get to, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. I love that mentoring because athletes, you know, coaches are some of the biggest mentors in some of the athletes' lives. Um, and that, that that relationship between the coach and the athlete, you know, how do you see that that relationship between the coach and the athlete? Uh, like a parent, <laughs> a parent child or like a big brother, big sister kind of, you're going to listen to coach. Because coach says this and coach is going to get me here. You know, coach understands what I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm going to listen to what coach has to say because he he's going to get me that full ride to college. He's going to um, get me in touch with these recruiters. Um, you know, coach is essential to where I want to go. Mm-hmm. So you know, thinking about association at the association level too, you know, the, those that are, you know, athletic trainers have associations, you know, so go also looking at how can we work with different associations, uh, right. outreach with different associations, um, thinking about even coaches and there's also, you know, former player associations as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great start too, because right. I think that with, with sports concussions, in sports concussion management, you, we, I think it's, I think it's great to look at former athletes um, because they, they're not necessarily playing anymore. So there's that conflict of interest of, you know, you're going to take away my scholarship. You know, if, if I don't, if I am report my sports, if I report my concussion, there is a possibility that I may lose my scholarship right so when uh when a athlete is playing there you know there are some of those those concerns right when you look at maybe a former athlete like a couple years removed 
that response is going to be a little bit different, you know, than an yeah. athlete that is currently playing an in season, right? Um, When I was conducting my research, I could not conduct my research during the season. It was after the season that I was able to, you know, provide uh, cognitive assessments and I was able to uh, go in and do focus groups and and utilize questionnaires. So I think it's the timing also of when you are trying to accomplish uh, collaboration and who you um, who you are trying to accomplish that collaboration with. So the timing is also important, and also how removed the athlete is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's also great to look at the prevention. So younger athletes, right, and starting um, looking at the continuum of care. And I always say that we have to look at sports concussion management from uh, from a holistic standpoint of, of the continuum of care. So we start with prevention and we look at young athletes and we are looking at return to learning and how it's impacting their learning and then how their sports concussion history. I think we didn't talk about sports concussion history either, but sports concussion history is so important because you have co- college athletes, collegiate athletes who have probably been playing about 10 years of a sport or, you know, or less, but usually like football, you have play players that have about playing about 10 years um, of football already. Um, and now they're a college athlete and they've gone through the younger athletes have gone through these protocols, concussion protocols. They're familiar with them, more familiar than their coaches, you know, have, have mm-hmm. her because the, the coaches did not go through a protocol. Um, when they were growing up, right? So now you have the younger athletes who are more familiar with their protocols and now they're collegiate athletes. And then they're going through still learning their their executive functionings are still, you know, are still growing, you know, developing. Um, and that then you have those pressures on them while they're a college athlete. And then they may, they graduate, they go on to their vocational settings or they go into a professional athletic setting. Um, and so there are different pathways also for athletes too that we have to right. identify, right? Those different pathways. How, how I want to talk about concussion history because I want to get your, before we, I want to get your take on concussion history. What does that mean to you, concussion? Um, that, um, that basically, um, the person has sustained multiple concussions over their lifespan um, that they may have had um, addressed um, in certain like domains that they may have had it addressed with like a neuropsychologist or uh, a PTO or OT, but they never truly had um, the cognitive cognition um, retraining that we could provide as SLPs that would um, help them to, um, I guess, better tackle tackle their deficits on their own. Utilize strategies. Strategies, right. Compensate compensatory strategies. Strategies, right. Identifying, also incorporating counseling and identifying key areas, their own perceptions, thinking about their own perceptions. Um, and then also concussion history from they, they may have had traumatic brain injury. It may not be sports related. You know, it may be um, violence or a, a car accident or something. You know, they may have traumatic brain injury, but it may not be sports related either. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, their history of their, like if they also have um, difficulty, they've had difficulty in, in school. And they've acquired an IEP or a 504 plan, understanding their educational history as well. Right. Um, Alicia, thank you so much. I mean, is there, I feel like, is there anything else um, that we talked about neuroscience, but you didn't really talk about like what you were planning to do in neuroscience. So I would love for you to share that as well. So um, essentially what I hope to um, 
accomplished as a neuroscientist is using um, the information that we that I acquire as an SLP, like the cognitive um, linguistic deficits that are often like seen, like using those um, to basically indicate um, as biomarkers, basically to tell us that the person has CTE, because you know CTE is only diagnosed um, when the person passes away and then do the official autopsy. But like if we could like capture that before the person passes away or provide them some like intervention before, you know, it gets that far. Um, so that would be my goal as a neuroscientist. I, I mean, I can't wait to see you in that, you know, in that light and see your work. Um, anything else that you want to share? Uh, if you have any questions, no. put it in a chat box. Can you also let our listeners know how to reach you as well? Um, you can reach me um, via email at um, Alicia2002, S-H-A-N-T-A at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram. Um, I'm neurally medical SLP. Um, you can direct, um, direct message me on there. Um, yeah. Thank you. And I think it's also important to talk about social media, um, and how we disseminate information now, you know, through social media, what's your take on public health and utilizing, you know, public health, social media for public health as well? I think it's a great option, honestly. Um, you, it's a way to capture um, the attention of somebody that has a short attention span <laughs> to me. Um, it's a way to deliver um, pertinent information in a, a light manner um, instead of something like the strongest that that's going to deter somebody from, you know, looking further. So I'll, I like using social media to, I guess, present individuals with things that I think, you know, would better them or give them access to certain things that they weren't like thinking about before. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back over those resources um, because um, it was kind of choppy during that time. So if you can go back over those resources again for our listeners as well. The, the journals? Yes, please. Okay, um, so one of the resources that I pull information from was the National um, Electronic Injury Surveillance System. Um, it's a NICE online database, and you can go in there and they track like um, concussions through those who are admitted to the hospital and treated. Um, I pull information from um, a Sage journal. Um, factors affecting the, um, the concussion knowledge of athletes, parents, coaches, and medical professionals. Um, I pull um, information from the Journal of Head Trauma Rehabilitation, um, disparities in healthcare utilization of adults with traumatic brain injuries, and how that is related to insurance, race, and, and ethnicity. Um, I pulled information from um, a sports health journal as well. Um, talking about pathophysiology of sports-related concussion and update on basic science and translational research. Um, pulled information from congress.gov to um, demonstrate the laws that, or the bills that were presented that were never passed. Um, I put other information from um, a current research journal, um, the value of speech language pathologists in concussion management um, and the Brain Injury Association book, I pull information from that, and I also pull um, information from let's see, a P a PMNR journal, um, interdisciplinary rehabilitation referrals in a concussion and clinic cohort in the sports for analysis. 
And you're also a certified brain injury specialist. And I, I want to kind of talk about that too, because those that are listening may be interested in receiving that designation. Can you talk a little bit about your experience um, becoming a certified brain injury specialist? I'm sorry, you say talk a little bit about what? Uh, becoming a certified brain injury specialist. Okay. Um, so um, basically when I decided to become a certified brain injury specialist, I was looking for certifications um, that, that would allow me to like self-pace and study. Um, so I found um, the Brain Injury Association of America. Um, they have an option where you can self-study or attend um, in person my work schedule. Um, so a lot of the information is dealing with um, like epidemiology. You um, review information on the laws. You review uh, anatomy and physiology of the brain. There's chapters about, um, you know, speech, the, how SLPs are important to the recovery process. So basically every discipline that would touch or uh, that brain injury, um, you're going to be um, tested upon um, for the exam. Well, thank you so much, Elisa Smalls. Uh, we truly appreciate your research, education, and expertise you've provided about tackling the silent epidemic, mild traumatic brain injury after sports concussion. And thank you so much for joining us. I am Dr. Tadia Pope, and you can follow me at Head to Speech on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I will see you uh, next time on The Neural. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Mm-hmm.